Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Yes ABS. So if you're joining us for the first time, a quick recap of the rules. Um, basically, me and Paul, we're going to tell each other three facts. They could be true, they could be lies, and we give points out if we get it correct. Yeah, if one person guesses correctly whether it's true or not. Mm. Yeah, Very simple. I, th- I think we don't explain the rules very often. No, people, I think, drop in on it and then kind of expect it to be true. And then right at the end, it turns out to be false. Mm. So, yeah, explaining the rules every now and then helps. We're not really very good at this whole podcasting thing. No, we're literally, like, muddling through as best you can. <laughs> exactly. So, anyway, what sort of facts have you got for me today? I've got two history-ish Ooh, and okay. um, one about books. Okay. Which I know isn't your area of expertise normally. What have well, you got? Well, actually, Paul, all of mine follow a theme today. Oh, no. Ooh. Now, you see, you keep doing this. You keep adding <laughs> bonus points and no, all there's sorts no, of things. There's no bonus points. It's, okay. it's just a theme. Right. It's kind of along the lines of biology, the animal world. And then right. we're going to finish on human biology. It's a rich tapestry that I'm going to work through today. You're straying into science here. I am. Which has never done us well on this. Listeners who've uh, been with us since the start will know that science never, ever goes particularly well on this. In my final fact, there's actually a, quite a bit of science. So oh, I'm, no. I'm a little terrified at how so, that one's going to go. Let me just put this parachute on and get ready to <clears> bail out. No, it'll be fine, I'm sure. It will. I thought because with the three episodes into season three now, we need to do some sort of science fight. Okay. All right. Then. But launching into my <clears> first one. Right. Okay. I'm kind of basing this a little bit on last week when we looked at the dinosaurs. Oh, yes, we did. I genuinely couldn't remember what happened last week. (laughs) This is why we're kind of winging this whole podcast. (laughs) But it's not the dinosaurs I want to talk about. We're we're staying with Mm prehistory, but we're looking at the various megafauna that lived at the same time as modern human beings. (laughs) Okay. All right. Do you know know much about the prehistoric megafauna? What do you think the answer to that question is? You've got to know at least one. (laughs) I know. um, Are you you talking about like mammoths? Yes. And uh, the cats with the big teeth? Yes, the saber-toothed. Those. Smilodon, I believe they were called. Oh, there you see. I know that because I'm currently addicted to a game where you run like a dinosaur theme park. I've got this app <laughs> and there's a smile dot on it. Could that be our first sponsor if they're listening? Yeah, hey, if, um, if wow. you're listening, you know, you can pay and we'll mention you a bit more. <laughs> so that's kind of along those lines. So okay. Sabertooth tiger, uh, mammoth and that sort of thing. Out of all of the words I thought you were going to use today, megafauna wasn't one of them. It's the scientifically correct word. It's okay, tell me about megafauna. So basically there was various extinctions that happened to the megafauna. They always tended to coincide just as human beings arrived in different areas of the world. I don't know if that's just a coincidence. Mm, who, who knows? <laughs> what happened? Perhaps the... they're linked. <laughs> exactly. That actually seems to be the common theory that extinction of the megafauna was a result of human hunting because right. they're so big, easy to catch, human ingenuity, easy to kill. Oh, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I never well, thought about that. Because was there not like giant sloths and stuff? Yes, that was what actually inspired me to do this fact today. Oh, right, Because okay. I love the Natural History Museum in London. Yeah. And if anyone who's ever visited there, you will find a giant sloth. Yes. A giant, well, a, well not a real one. It's, a, it's the skeleton. Yeah, it, it, it's it, not it's not working. in the cafeteria, <laughs> He's called Gerald. He, he serves a really good cup of coffee down there. So that was what inspired the megafauna. Now, okay. I think I've got a couple of quick facts on the giant sloth before we move Ooh, on to okay. my actual fact. Right. So are you ready, Paul? Okay. okay. Here we go. So Gerald, the guy who works at the cafeteria, mm-hmm. he is about six metres tall. Which, six metres yes, tall? Yes, which translates to about 20 feet. Yeah, that's and huge. First discovered in Argentina. All right, okay. Um, he 
became extinct about 10,000 years-ish ago. Oh, right. And that's kind of roughly when human beings were arriving in South America. Actually, they spread out from Africa. It was about 125,000 years ago. They spread to Europe, uh, Asia. About 40,000 years ago, they landed in Australia. And the Americas were the most recent at about 15,000 years ago. And they were, like, uninhabited before then? Completely uninhabited. Oh, wow. By human beings, obviously. That's an interesting timeline. It is. It's actually quite amazing. People made it to Australia 40,000 years ago. So they would have had to have boats to island hop across what is now Indonesia. Yeah. So the Aboriginal population of Australia came via that way. Oh, And across to America, it was via the Bering Strait. I was going to say that had been up in the Arctic. Yes. Right. But there's another theory that... That people actually took ships, so from the eastern edge of Russia, they just kind of followed the coast down what is now Canada and the US. Oh, right, and just, okay. People came that way. Oh, right, okay. That's and interesting. it's North America is where we're going to start our journey into okay. the megafauna. Right, so, so everything up to now has been true. Everything up to now has been true. Okay. <laughs> and I'm going to give you two more true facts. Right. Basically, you probably guess where this is going. I'm going to give you some examples of giant megafauna. Right. And... First two are true, but the third one is what I'm wanting to guess on. Okay. So first one, probably the most famous, is the American Mastodon. <laughs> of course, the most famous is the American Mastodon. I've literally <laughs> never heard about it in my life. The American Mastodon. Yeah. What's that? It's like a woolly mammoth, but slightly smaller. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. they're about nine foot two tall. Okay. But so how big was a mammoth then? A little bit taller. But actually, woolly mammoths were around at the same time as the Egyptians were building the pyramids at Giza. No way. They were. They were very isolated populations on some island somewhere. At the same time as the Egyptians? Yes, as pyramids... They didn't last much longer. I think it was a few hundred more years before they were wiped out. That's insane. But woolly mammoths walked to the earth at the same time as the Egyptians... That's insane. You see? Okay. Fascinating facts I'm bringing you. Right. Um, we found some more interesting points about the mastodon social structures. Hmm. It was largely females and young living together, which suggested that the males were kind of kicked out of the group and they would come back to mate. Oh, right. So okay, much like so... your own personal experience, Paul, where you... <laughs> Where women repel you from their social groups. I just, <laughs> I just drop in every so often to mate. <laughs> then you don't see me for weeks. And then we'll find you in a boneyard one day eventually. So it was like a sort of harem thing. Like, is, uh, that, not is, that, s- how, is that how chimps work? No, chimps live in big troops. Oh. So it's oh, kind wow. of like they have like the alpha male chimp at the top. Oh, who sort of looks after everything. Yeah. Actually, another interesting chimp bit there. Did oh, you know um, it's not always the strongest chimp? who is the troop leader, because it's the chimp who helps the other chimps out more. So they're a bit more democratic than we thought they might be. Oh, really? Yeah, so I it's like it was a... just like, they fight sort of tooth and nail, and whoever wins is uh, the leader. That's part of it, but if the chimp leader's a bit of a dickhead, it's been known for like two or three chimps to come and gang up on him and kill him, so oh, wow. then replace him as leader. But that's not exactly democratic. <laughs> <laughs> sounds more anarchic. If, if you're going to attach a name to that sort of particular system, I wouldn't say democracy. Well, the majority voted. Yes, okay, all it's right. A, it's a kind of democracy. Yeah. I don't like chimps, you know. No, they're really violent. Yeah. They're and that noise they make just... Like, I understand why people really like them, mm. but they kind of freaks me out a bit. I don't, I don't like they're it. They're absolutely ripped as well. <laughs> <laughs> absolute gym goals. <laughs> you see them down the CrossFit every week. 
<laughs> they're loving it. But no, they're quite terrifying chimps. I wouldn't like to meet one. Anyway, we're not talking about anyway, modern chimps. Get we're back to your mastodon social structure. We're talking structure. about megafauna. Uh, another one that's quite famous is the glyptodon. Now, I recognise that word. Yeah, you see, you do I, know I, these things. I don't know what it looks like. It was a giant armadillo about <laughs> about about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. An armadillo the size of a Volkswagen Beetle? Yes. Right. There's been evidence of the early humans in South America where the glyptodon lived. Once they'd killed a glyptodon, they would use its shell as like a shelter. That's ridiculous. So they would... This is true as well. This is a... Wow. This is all true to this point. Okay. And that was kind of... The tail was similar as well. They think they would use that... <laughs> That was like the garage. <laughs> That's like a little extension on the side. That's where... <laughs> they built a little picket fence out of the tails. Like, oh, you know. Keep with pots and pans in the tail. We've got a lovely home here, Martha. <laughs> We've got a lovely glyptodon shell. I worked hard for this. <laughs> so they were quite big. Um, about 11 feet long, about four and a half feet tall. Blimey. 11 foot long? Yeah. Wow. So a good size for a tent. If you're so, yeah, one. emphasis on the mega in the word megafauna. Exactly. This is These why... These things are massive. There's so many examples of megafauna. I'm kind of like terrified <clears throat> about what the third on this list is going to be. Are you ready? This, okay. is, this is where, is this real or did I make this up? Right. Now, this animal is called camelops. <laughs> You've made this up. <laughs> camelops. <laughs> is that not just you trying to say the word camelot? <laughs> No, actually, it sounds like quite a dopey animal. Oh, hello, I'm, I'm Camelops. <laughs> I'm the giant North American camel. Is the one here? I think I can hear it. <laughs> oh, we brought him on. Come on in, Camelops. <laughs> oh, good hello, everybody. <laughs> we could totally get away with that. <laughs> actually, so Camelops, you probably guessed, is a camel. Uh, yes. And it was almost the same height as the mastodon. Right. So I don't even know how big a normal camel is. I've never seen um, that. It's actually, they're not much smaller than this giant camel. Right. So this, the camelops, he was about seven and a half feet tall. Right. Weighed about 800 kilos or 1,800 pounds. There's a lot of evidence to show that camelops was over hunters. A lot of the skeletons they found have uh, tool marks showing that had been butchered by oh, human right. beings. Uh, now, here's a fascinating fact from camelops as well. Camelops. <laughs> so, <laughs> did you know that camels originally evolved in America and then spread over to Asia? Same as horses. The very first species of horses were from North America. Oh, right. They toddled off over the Bering Strait when there was like when there was a land bridge there. And that's where all the camels come all from. All the camels and all the horses. So why are there no camels in America now? Or are there? Because camelops was hunted to, oh, all the right, camels okay. were hunted to extinction, as were the horses about 11,000 oh. years ago. They evolved somewhere between 35 and 56 million years ago. Oh, right. Okay. So, so they, they were there. They had for, a good innings. So they're for millions of years, human beings turn up and they're dead. But all modern camels, so like the Bactrian camel, which is in Central Asia, mm. they share a lot of characteristics with camelops. There's my fact. They went extinct about 8,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Didn't have any armour. Quite easy to kill with spears. Poor camelops. So is the is the question, did camelops Did camelops exist? exist? Or have you made him up? Yes. It sounds very plausible, apart from the word camelops. Mm. So camels originated in North America and then made their way across... Yes. Bering Strait. That seems extraordinary, but I suppose, mm. yeah, it would have been it would have been like the Arctic at that point, the far north, wouldn't it? Well, we don't know when they first started to come over. Remember, they evolved about oh, right. 56 million right. years ago, so they had a good they had a good chance. Right. But it's like the oldest fossils are in North America, so yes. that's where they originated. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I never would have thought of like a giant prehistoric camel 
And then I wouldn't certainly wouldn't have thought that it came in North America. Mm. And I definitely wouldn't have thought that it would get the name Camelops. <laughs> but it all sounds kind of plausible, I guess. Mm. I could also see you making this up, but I think it's plausible. I, I, I think this might be true. Camelops. Yeah. <laughs> see, now you say it like that, I'm instantly doubting myself. Oh, so, sorry, Camelops. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to say this is true. I think Camelops existed. Okay, final answer? Yes. Little Camelops, poor little dopey Camelops, did exist. Oh, wow. Yes. A giant prehistoric camel. Yeah, about seven and a half feet tall. It's almost as, bad, almost as tall as me now. <laughs> almost. <laughs> almost. He's not quite yeah, there. He'd still know. be in your shadow. I'm a pretty tall, handsome guy. Really. <laughs> ah, right. Wow. Gigantic camels mm. in North America. Yes. Yeah, it's it's... You kind of you can go down a rabbit hole searching megafauna. Is that a pun? Is, it, is <laughs> yeah. your next fact about giant rabbits? <laughs> I think there may well have been giant rabbits somewhere. You know, uh, you're making this. No, up. there's got to have been giant rabbits somewhere at some point. Yeah, you're probably right though. Mm. Oh, actually, um, when I was doing research on camelops, someone mm. had rebuilt the skeleton, obviously, and then they'd put a like a skin over it to say this is what it might have looked like. Right. And it, he looks as dopey as he sounds. Oh. I think they might have done that deliberately to his face, but he's going, It's like really long snout. See, if they actually did manage to do Jurassic Park, it would probably be things like that that mm. have the sort of most complete DNA. I'm sure I read somewhere that the woolly mammoth has some sort of complete DNA somewhere. Yeah, I've got a feeling I've read that. Is it, someone was going some... to use an elephant as a yeah. surrogate mother for it. Yeah. But this is where now I'm really off topic. I don't have a... I, this is where I'm really not clued up on what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, no, this, we need to save this for a bonus, bonus episode. But if it can be done... Along, alongside the Velociraptor, we're going to bring back to life so it can fight you. Paul. So I can fight with it. Yes, we uh, we established that last week. You can fight a Camelops. <laughs> Will do. I think I think my odds are better with a Camelops. No, I, I still reckon I could take a Velociraptor. Actually, no, I couldn't. I couldn't take one barehanded. Like I, I can't fight Camelops. Like, you could wrestle it to the ground. Wrestle it to the ground. <laughs> it's it's eight hundred kilos. Yeah, and you're a little <laughs> bit shy of that. But... <laughs> I still think you could manage it. Okay, right. Next next on the list, <laughs> Paul will fight a Velociraptor and I will fight Cabalops. Yeah, there we go. Make it happen, John Hammond. I know you're listening. Let's go! Right, well, first blood to me. Mm-hmm. First uh, camel blood to me. That was a good fact, though. Gigantic camels. Yeah, thank you. Terrible joke you just made there. It didn't really make any sense, uh, but... Uh, yeah, no. I'd, good yeah. first fact. Just shoehorn that in. <laughs> so are all of yours about megafauna? Not all of them are about megafauna. Um, there's a theme. You'll get to it. Oh, Come right, on, okay. we'll get to it. Okay. Let's spoil the surprise. Well, from the sublime to the ridiculous. Can you remember uh, um, a while ago that we did this? You had a fact about the coal industry in the 1800s. I did, and it was, I think, our best fact ever. It was the, probably, uh, yeah, maybe, but it was probably the least popular one. <laughs> What do you mean the Victorian coal industry isn't isn't a thrilling topic for the kids? If only there was a way to keep track of the number of people who clicked their browsers shut. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, I'm now battling for most boring fact we've ever done. Oh, you could pick any one of your episodes, are you? One of your facts there, Paul. <laughs> I, I set the jokes up, you knocked them down. Uh, because I'm going to be talking about the history of the modern washing machine. Can I get a replacement for myself for this one? I'll just, I'll just knock on my neighbour. People see if he wants to sit in for this. I'll start talking and then like 10 minutes I realise that the chair opposite's empty. <laughs> <laughs> no, now bear with me because washing machines are actually quite interesting. Oh, do go on. I said that as sincerely as I could, but we'll try. We'll I try. 
Okay, go on. <clears throat> okay, so here's a question for you, uh, Tones. What year do you think the first device called a washing machine was patented in England? Ooh, a lot earlier than you'd think. Mm. Probably 1728. Not that far off. Ooh. 1691. Hey, look at that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but obviously that wasn't a sort of, you know, a Zanussi or something. <laughs> <laughs> a it hot was, point. It was more just sort of like, a, it, well, I've seen one of these things was uh, labelled a hand-powered agitator. Oh. Which is also your job description. <laughs> <I mean. laughs> I was desperately trying to think of something. There's a joke to fit in there. Uh, so, yeah, basically it was just kind of like like a butter churn, basically. It was just like a big drum with a handle on the side of it. Can you patent that? <sighs> Somebody did. Right. Sorry, Six, I'm sorry, go 1691. on. Um, yeah, so that was the 1691. The first one that had like an actual drum um, hmm. was 1782. So this sort of technology is quite old. Uh, rotary washing machine. Mm-hmm. Um, presented at the Great Ex- Great Exhibition <laughs> in uh, 1862. And the first electric washing machine, when do you think that was? Ooh, late Victorian. Some oh, 18... Yeah, you're on fire. 1890s. Yeah. Almost 1904. Ooh. Yeah. Um, it's usually credited to someone called Alva J. Fisher, uh, who invented a sort of modern electric uh, washing machine. And you know what he called it? Ooh. That, like the, the, the model the, name, the, like the, not the device. Oh, yeah. something ridiculous like <laughs> that. The dr- drum crank 3000 or something. <laughs> Which is also your job description. <laughs> no, he called it the Thor. The Thor? Oh, yeah, so I, I, don't, I don't quite know how loud it because was. Because Thor was known for his, his <laughs> laundry. Yeah, for his laundry skills. <laughs> uh, no, he called it a Thor. Uh, but yeah, they turned out to be really popular as, as soon as they kind of became kind of mass marketed, I guess. Mm. Um, so that by the late 1920s, there were uh, 900,000 of them being sold a year in the United States Jeez. alone. First uh, laundromat. What year do you reckon that was? This is like the most boring pub quiz ever. Nineteen twenty-four. So dull a question, you can't even get the words out. Nineteen thirty-four. Yeah, and the first automatic washing machine is everywhere. Everyone still awake? First automatic washing machine, nineteen thirty-seven. Oh. So it is quite early technology. I thought. I am thrilled. Yeah, I'm, I'm thr- thoroughly engaged. Yeah, maybe it was just me that found the washing machine uh, interesting. Is, but is, is there an interesting fact buried in here? Some... There's, a, there's a fact. It's up to you whether it's interesting or not. Uh, yeah, this device that was invented in nineteen oh four is kind of like it's a bit arbitrary that this is said to be like the earliest washing machine because it's kind of credit to him but there was lots of other people who patented things and there are early patents for similar devices so the fact that Alva J. Fisher gets the, the credit is kind of there's no reason why it should be him mm. and nobody else and that brings me to my fact oh we're here okay. so everything before this as well as being immensely boring has been true <laughs> so now the question is whether or not one of the very first modern washing machine prototypes was made out of parts of a battleship. Ooh! <laughs> now you've all perked back up. Right, take, take those vegetables out your ears and listen up. Okay, so the year is 1922, mm-hmm. okay, and we're in New Jersey with an American inventor and mechanic called Jackson Spirette or Spirette. Um, yes, yeah, so he worked at a military salvage yard in Cape May, which is right like on the very southern tip of New Jersey. It's like kind of right next to Delaware. And he worked there for a number of years. But his wife was a kindergarten teacher. Mm. And she would quite often come home kind of with all kinds of spills battleship and things. Battleship <laughs> With battleship <laughs> parts. Uh, all kinds of spills and things all over her clothes. And she was always dealing with the kids' clothes in the kindergarten and blah, 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 blah. Um, so he decided, I'm going to make this technology easier. I'm going to invent something that helps uh, my wife 
wash clothes more efficiently mm. when she's at work or something. So uh, he works on a military salvage yard. There's all sorts of little mechanical bits and bobs just lying around. He's there just sort of scrapping everything all day long. So he starts, you know, picking up a little bit of things here and a little bit of this here. And he puts together like this really early model of, of an automatic washing machine. It was so powerful that it had to be bolted to the floor. He'd put such a big gearbox in it. Mm. So you could kind of like, you know, like the gears on a car, mm. you could kind of shove the power up using that really yeah and this whole thing would sort of rattle to pieces he originally in this very early thing put his is credited with being the first one that has a glass door in it he used this sort of i don't know whether it was a porthole but he put some <laughs> some kind of glass window so in it salvaged a porthole <laughs> and a giant engine yeah i doubt it was a porthole from a battleship um but he, he's credited with being the first person to put uh, glass in in a washing machine and he starts this machine off Fills it full of water and clothes, and the glass immediately shatters open <laughs> and uh, almost severs his thumb. So this was it seems a rather unpredictable device that he's invented here. Um, but eventually, kind of by hook or by crook, he puts this thing together, and he'd uh, worked out a suspension system for the drum and this sort of gear changing thing that went on the side of it that meant you could change the power of it were the two kind of new developments that meant that he managed to patent it and he patented it in 1922 but according to legend Ooh, a, a, a thrilling legend yeah, <laughs> a lot of the parts came from the USS Illinois which mm. was a battleship uh, part of the Atlantic fleet actually but it got very damaged during the um, active service in like the 1910s uh, was towed across to Boston where it was used as a barracks ship so it was just sort of like kind of in dry dock I guess but mm. it's sort of used as just like you would go and stay on it mm. they just use it as like a sort of storehouse and people stay overnight on it um, and then it kind of became a little bit too run down to use so they towed it down to New Jersey and it was dismantled at this scrapyard. So we think that this very sort of illustrious First World War battleship of part of the Atlantic fleet was what this guy used to put together this nonsense machine mm. um, that, in, that he eventually kind of patented. That could just be legend. We just kind of all know that that battleship was dismantled at that yard. Mm. He was working there at that time. So we think that he used these parts to build this ludicrous device that needed to be bolted to the ground. It was so powerful, it probably shook your clothes to pieces as soon as you turned it mm. on. Um, what happened to his work after that, we don't really know, but he painted it in 1922. It never took it any further, but some research just in the last sort of decade or so, while people have been looking into the history of washing machines, because... you know, because it's such, <laughs> such a fascinating subject, uh, I found out that his wife had twins in 1924, and in the 1930s, census he was then living in ohio hmm. so um something's happened did he put his... the washing machine on a travel there <laughs> so yeah he <laughs> never he... fire them across country <laughs> um he never pushed the device any further he never kind of went on to become some illustrious inventor or anything but when this patent was discovered he was sort of credited with being among the earliest to invent this but one of the very first prototype washing machines was made out of parts of a okay. battleship i think my first suspicion is you've gone deliberately boring, <laughs> but no, and it's it's actually a lie because you're thinking, oh, well, he wouldn't make up something with so many mundane little facts to it. What's what's mundane about talking about the history of washing machines? Hey, at least when I, fascinated at least when I did the coal industry, it went it led onto a ghost ship. Oh dear, I'm still getting flashbacks how boring that discussion <laughs> of the coal industry was. <laughs> Right, so how did the USS Illinois get damaged? Uh, oh, no, that I don't know. It was just it was part of the Atlantic fleet. Mm. Um, so it saw sort of active service in the First World War. Um, presumably it was damaged in service somewhere in the North Atlantic. 
uh, ended up in Boston and, as I say, was used for about four or five years so, just as a barracks ship. So he's he's bought in this sort of engine on the back of a washing machine. <laughs> I don't like, think how, it's like a, a battleship engine. <laughs> I was going to say, like, what other parts of the battleship could he use? Oh, I don't think he he just used battleship parts. <laughs> oh, so he's doing, he, 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 it's not like Scrappy Challenge, <laughs> but just a battleship. So he, were, he was a scrap yard, so he yeah, had a, it was, lots of parts. Uh, uh, yeah, there would have been sort of mil- old military vehicles and stuff there. Mm. Um, but it's thought that sort of some of the major parts of this of this invention that he came up with mm. um, came from this huge battleship that, that was sort of dismantled there at exactly the same time. Again, I think my gut feeling is saying that this can't be true. There's something that's off about it. Mm-hmm. You tried to pull one over with me last week about um, one of those picture flip books. Oh, that... the what the, what the butler saw machine. Yeah, and yeah. then it was used in a crime, yeah. but it wasn't. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. See, I just can't remember what happens one week to the next. <laughs> I care about this podcast. <laughs> so I think I might just have to, to say BS, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to come out and... It's <laughs> <laughs> like, such a boring fact. I know, right? Like, really it. I, I'm, like, I'm not going to debate anymore. Right, BS. That's my final answer. Okay. BS? Yes. That entire fact? Yes. Was BS. I knew it. <laughs> the USS Illinois is a genuine battleship, um, but no, it wasn't dismantled in I think it was because when, when you said he just d- disappeared and he went to live in Ohio. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that was like such a like well, cobbled on end. It's like, I, oh, yeah, where do yeah, you went to Ohio? I thought you would go like, oh, so what happened to the rest of the design? Why didn't he go, go out to become an inventor? So I was like, I need to write this guy out the story as <laughs> oh, quick did, as possible. <laughs> did, you, did you give him a proper backstory as well? Like, Oh, no, no. Oh, I see, like, I no. should have interrogated that <laughs> No, I made that up. I, I, You know what? I literally sat at home this afternoon and was like, right, I need to make a fact up for the podcast and my washing machine was on and I was like right I'll, wow I'll, I'll write about washing machines <laughs> don't don't pull back the curtain and reveal the thought process behind yes or yes so yeah that was um, yeah that was that but all of those facts about the history of washing machines completely true and I'm sure everyone will remember them all yeah there'll be a quiz next week everyone listen up <laughs> Well, thank you, Paul, for a fascinating fact. Our our seven listeners have has now collapsed. I'm I'm sorry. What? I, I nodded off for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to give a shout out to our two listeners who remain with us. <laughs> yeah, they got through the coal industry. They can they can get through the washing machine fact. There are day one fans. We can do this. <laughs> but as I said earlier in the podcast, all mm-hmm. of my facts are kind of linked today. I know. I'm intrigued by this now. Um, I don't know all, where you're going. So we've, we've been we've talked about extinct biology. We're now mm-hmm. moving on to kind of crazy survival stories in biology. Oh, so right, some okay. of the some interesting animals that have some interesting features or that are just they're just very hardy. Oh right, okay. Yeah, uh, the first one, so again starting off, all of these are true. Right. I think in twenty eighteen, two roundworms were found in permafrost in Siberia. And it turns out these roundworms were 45,000 years old. And when they thawed them out, they were alive. They started moving again. That is disgusting. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that is amazing. No, it's disgusting. Roundworms. Yeah, they're very hardy roundworms. I'll tell you who's very hardy is people listening to this. <laughs> Going from washing machines to roundworms. It goes 45,000 years. That's actually not that long a time because that's just... Our between season gaps for yes <laughs> yeah. or be yes. That's how long how long we take between <laughs> episodes to work out how to put these microphones back together. <laughs> season four coming in the year eighty six thousand. <laughs> Don't you worry, guys. Those roundworms will be listening. We'll be talking about dishwashers then. 
They're the two listeners I was talking about. <laughs> These two roundworms are sticking with us. So the next one, we're going to look at the Alaskan wood frog. Another, again, this is true. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to kind of give you some amazing stories of survival. Frogs are a little bit nicer than worms. Well, it depends if you're a worm person or a frog person. I don't think there's such a thing as a worm person. <laughs> I don't like either of them. But we're talking about how they survive. Right. So they live in Alaska, obviously, because Alaskan wood frogs. You have frogs in Alaska. Yeah. And this is how the frogs survive, because the winters are quite long over there. They freeze up to 60% of their own bodies, and they stop breathing, and their heart stops beating. Good grief. Yeah. So they freeze, like, 60% of the freeze is solid. Uh, yeah, just completely frozen solids. What? Because they can't, there's no food for them in the winter, so they have to survive. Well, then just don't live there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, evolution, these are supposed to be. Evolution is the most madcap thing. It's like, either I can evolve some sort of process where I freeze solid every year, mm. or I just move. <laughs> What if they like the scenery in the in the summer? They like to hop around, you know, oh, it's gorgeous mountains up here and everything. Well, then just stay there in the summer. These are supposed, and then these swim are supposed off. to be amazing stories of survival, and you're just, you're having to go with the, the, the worms, you're having to go with the frogs. Mother Nature strikes again. <laughs> but yeah, they can survive because they have about 10 times more glucose in their bodies than no other animals would. Oh, wow. That so sounds sh- like me after I ate that family sized bag of Skittles all to myself. <laughs> Didn't, your... didn't sleep for weeks. <laughs> you could have frozen yourself in Alaska, apparently. But those that the, that high amount of sugar kind of acts as a, an anti-freezing agent for them. Oh wow! I think there's been thoughts that this could lead to some research into human cryo freezing eventually. Oh, but I don't I think we're anywhere near that at the minute. Okay. But now we're moving on to the third. Okay, animal. so this is either you've made this animal up or yes. it's true. Yes. Okay. Are you ready? I kind of really hope you've made this up, because if you have to make up an animal, it'll be the most (laughs) madcap thing. It'll have like nine heads. We're talking about... It'll be like 80% anus. You haven't heard its name yet. Okay. It's the red-lipped batfish. You've made this up. (laughs) And it lives in the Arctic Ocean. Right. Actually, the fascinating fact about the Arctic Ocean, the frozen water at the top doesn't freeze at zero degrees Celsius. It actually freezes at minus 1.8 degrees Celsius oh. because there's so much salt oh, in the water right. up there. Oh, that's interesting. The Arctic Ocean underneath can get to about five kilometres deep. Right. But the average is about one kilometre deep. That's quite shallow as oceans go, isn't it? It is, which is where the red-lipped batfish lives. <laughs> <laughs> Other than in the recess of, of your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> right. Actually, you know, when I was researching this fact, did you know the Arctic Ocean has 823 Google reviews and it only, <laughs> and it only has 3.3 stars out of five? Most Why? Of, Why are people giving bad pe- reviews to an ocean? They go, People go out there and there's so many joke reviews. Someone, oh, someone right. said, please put more benches there. Oh, well. Things like that. Okay. So it's ridiculous things like that. So... The red-lipped batfish, it tends to live mostly on the ocean floor. Mm-hmm. It's an anglerfish, so it lures its prey in. Okay, those are minging as well. Yeah. It's kind of, it's a funny-looking fish because it can't really swim very well. It's got two short fins at the front, mm-hmm. uh, but it has kind of like pectoral fins that are almost like legs. So it walks itself along the ocean floor. Right. Burrows itself into the ground, and the fish comes swimming over to the red-lipped batfish with its giant red lips. Mm-hmm. The fish swim in, the uh, red-lipped batfish grabs it, mm-hmm. and it actually warms its prey to death. <laughs> because the fish are so used to... The fish are so used to... Keep going. To... 
it warms the, them to death. Because underneath the ice sheet, the temperature is still quite cold. It's about five degrees Celsius. Okay. So still, these are fish are very used to surviving in cold salt water. So when they start to heat up, they die because they can't handle the heat. Well, how hot does it get? I don't know. I didn't read. I didn't research that far. It warms them to death. Yes. So in it, its like, mouth. Yes. Because it's it's it, it it uses its its lips that are full of blood, right? To attract how, the fish in. How big are its lips? Like how big is its mouth? Like don't what, actually. The, we're talking about prey animals. Like is it is the fish itself like the size of like a great white and it eats things? Like, oh the size no, of, like, these a seal? are these are small little fish. They're only about um, fifty centimeters long. Oh right, so it's eaten sort <clears> of like sardine size. Yeah, things. small little fish that it can grab. Oh, as right, it comes okay. along. It's it's not hunting down killer whales and. <laughs> Use it, put its massive lips over its face, just <laughs> right, okay. warming that, it to death. That, that makes slightly more sense. So that is my fact. Does the red-lipped batfish lure in its prey the with its red giant red lips? Lipped batfish. Right now, batfish sounds ridiculous. Red-lipped sounds actually slightly more plausible because you know you have sort of like yellow fin tuna mm. and you have like all those sorts of things so yeah like color plus noun <laughs> equals, <laughs> equals fish, fish uh, a lot of the time so yeah red lip batfish <laughs> there's a new superhero in here somewhere <laughs> batfish is it called batfish because it sort of crawls along the floor uh, what it's kind because, of fish does it's because like... it's 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 pectoral legs kind of look like bat wings this thing sounds minging as well mm. Uh, yeah, okay. So it's like, you know when bats are walking? Yeah. Like, they use their wings as, like, kind mm. of okay. crutches. Okay, and that's what it does. And it's mm. about half a metre long, mm. and it lives in the Arctic. <laughs> okay. And it warms its prey to death. It warms them to death. Mm. Now, you see, I, I originally thought that that sounded ludicrous. Um, I suppose, yeah, if the water is really, really cold, and the things that kind of live there are, are acclimatised to that temperature, mm. I suppose any massive change would be enough to kind of send them into some kind of shock. Mm. So, yeah, I suppose... I don't know how hot its mouth I think actually, gets. I, I think that's why it doesn't swim so much, because it's it has to use all of its energy, like pumping blood to, to its lips. To heat its mm. lips up. Mm. And its lips are like the lure. Yeah. So, like, because anglerfish have those things. Yes. Okay. And its lips are so attractive. I don't know what fish find attractive about these lips. <laughs> I've kind of got it in my mind that it looks a bit like the sort of Rolling Stones logo. <laughs> it does a bit, actually. No, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, oh, God. Only if you, so... st- if you stuck kind of legs to the side of it. Okay. Um, it sounds insane, but it doesn't sound so insane that I think you've made it up. I think... If you had to make up a fish, it like I say, it would it would like be about forty five times more ridiculous. Than this. <laughs> yeah, it would be like it's gold, seven... and it would wear glasses. <laughs> It'd be and... seven hundred meters long. <laughs> yeah, and have machine would... and have machine guns on its fins. Yeah, and its back would it wouldn't have fins; it would have navels, and <laughs> it would like you would come up with something ludicrous. The fact that it it walks and it uses its mouth as a lure. It all sounds sort of because there's like mud skippers and guppies and things. They mm. can kind of walk on their fins, so there is a precedent for that, I guess. Yeah, it. This is the thing. It sounds ridiculous, mm. but it doesn't sound so ridiculous that it sounds made up. Ready so, for an answer? Uh, yeah, I'm going to say that's true. Yes. This fact mm. is BS. Oh, what? <laughs> what was its prey to death? <laughs> 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 
in the Arctic with sort of an animal that's like, how would you roar? Just like, the fish could just swim well, away. No, I just, I thought like if it just sort of snaps its mouth around it and then just has to hold on to it until it goes into some sort of toxic shock mm. from the heat. That kind well, of sounds actually, plausible. Actually, the red-lipped batfish does exist, but it's in the Galapagos. It lives in the Galapagos Ocean and it doesn't warm its prey to death. Oh, but it's an actual animal. It's an actual animal. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, but wow. the whole living in the Arctic, warming its prey to death. Ugh. Nonsense. I don't know what it does, actually. It looks disgusting, whatever it is. <laughs> does it look like the Rolling Stones logo? <laughs> it does. Oh, this like... is disgusting. Give it a Google. I have, have to. Oh, dear me. Okay, well, well done, Tones. Thank you. Um, Yeah, we're sticking with animals in Ooh, a weird kind of like way. This. But, um, yeah, I'm going to talk about first pets. Ooh, I like where this is going. Um, so these are... Do you know what I mean by first pets? Like the first time an animal was domesticated as a pet? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I mean, oh, um, yeah. like first lady. It's the pets owned by US presidents. <laughs> well, <I'm> complete, <laughs> no, completely the, off talk, the point. Let's talk about the domestication of the cow. <laughs> it was going to be... That, that would be really interesting to me. Okay, yeah. Well, no, we're not going that way. We're okay. talking about uh, presidential pets. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so um, the Clintons had a, a cat called Socks. You might remember that. I remember Socks. Um, the Obamas had two dogs, Bo and Sonny, quite famously. Two presidents in the history have had no pets. Uh, do you know what either Ooh. of them is? President Taft? Oh, no. Uh, President Polk oh. uh, didn't have any pets. And, of course, uh, Trump doesn't. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, broken tradition. He's the first president in 170 years not Often. to have any pets. But it's a really long tradition of having um, pets at the White House. And I, I say that they're pets, but like a lot of them are sort of like the president's horse would be classed as his pet. Mm. So you would just sort of keep that at the stables at the White House or, or whatever. But uh, George Washington had uh, lots of animals. He had a foxhound called Sweet Lips. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit, uh, you don't want to be calling your pet sweet lips. Moving Pe- on. People are going to ask questions, George. <laughs> um, yeah, if you had to have a stab in the dock, uh, which president do you think had the most pets? Ooh, uh, the guy who was roughing Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt, I'm guessing. Wow, yeah, because absolutely he was, bang he, on. I know he loved the outdoors. Uh, yeah. Would have had a lot of hunting dogs, yeah, I'm guessing. Yeah, he had um, lots and lots of dogs, uh, lots of ponies. He had a macaw called Eli. Mm. Uh, he had a badger called Josiah. <laughs> oh. um, he had a lizard called Bill. Um, he had a one-legged rooster. He had a hen called Baron Speckle. Oh, I love- and if you had to have a guess at what his garter snake was called. R- Rattles. It was called Emily Spinach. <laughs> Apparently he was named by his daughter. He's now my favourite president. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of tempted to give some bonus points away here. Ooh. Because I've got a list of presidents. Finally. And I've got a list of insane <clears throat> names for pets. Okay. So I'm going to give you the name of the president and the name of the, the name of the pet. You need to tell me what kind of animal it was. Mm, okay. Okay. I'm so confident that you won't get any of these right. That, um, how many it. have I got? There's four bonus points. Four. I've already <laughs> two one up. I can absolutely clean this up here. Okay. Right. Calvin Coolidge mm-hmm. had a pet called William Johnson. <laughs> what was it? Ooh, a rabbit. <laughs> it was a pygmy hippopotamus. <laughs> I'm not going to get any of these. <laughs> uh, Ulysses Grant is a couple here. Uh, they were called Butcher's Boy, Egypt, and Jeff Davis. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to Jeff Davis? Yeah. 
Right, so... Jeff Stevens is an animal. He wasn't sort of a member of his cabinet. So, Civil War time-ish. Yeah. yeah. Um, what animals would he have? Ooh, are they, were they all the same animal? Yeah, they're all the same animal. Mm. I want to say horses. <laughs> but it's not going to be horses, is it? It's going to be something ridiculous, like... Koalas. <laughs> you should have stuck with your first answer. They were horses. Oh, no. Jeff Davis was Ulysses Grant's war horse. Oh, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Some sort of Civil War connection. Okay. Uh, Damn it. Benjamin Harrison. He had two pets called Mr. Reciprocity mm-hmm. and Mr. Protection. Cats. They were possums. <laughs> okay. And last chance for points. Okay. Oh. Last chance for points. We're going back to Roosevelt. Mm. Uh, he had some pets called Admiral Dewey, Father O'Grady, and f- <laughs> Fighting Bob Evans. <laughs> Ooh, cockerels. Ooh, what a good guess. And what a terrible name for a guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, oh, well, unfortunately, yeah, no, uh, no <sighs> bonus points there. Now, I said a little while ago that, um, yeah, there's only two presidents in history who have had no pets. Mm. Uh, it's a little bit debatable because Andrew Johnson... Mm. Uh, his pet, if you like, quote unquote, um, was that he just fed the mice that lived in his bedroom. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think that kind of counts as pets. I mean, like, arguably, there's three presidents. So. Yeah, I'd, I'd count that. Yeah, he's showing care and affection. He's, but, he's not having them killed. But we're not talking about any of this. All of that was true. Ooh. The president we're talking about is Andrew Jackson. Mm. Okay, so um, yeah, he was the seventh president, so it's really early days mm. of uh, of the republic. Um, and the fact is that he had a pet parrot, which was unnamed. Mm. So there's no fighting Bob Evans, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah, uh, but the parrot was unnamed, and it attended his funeral, mm-hmm. and it swore so badly that it had to be removed from the funeral. Okay, so Andrew Jackson bought this parrot for his wife, but unfortunately his wife died very suddenly. She died of a heart attack. Um, So he outlived his wife, which meant that he was sort of lumbered with this swearing parrot. And yeah, he was known as sort of quite a tough and sort of very principled, but very kind of temperamental character. Um, So we think that it picked up kind of a few of his more colourful words and phrases. So yeah, it used to basically swear like a trooper. Mm. Um, But it was one of his favourite pets. And so when he popped his clogs in 1845, it was taken to his funeral and um, yeah, started to swear incredibly badly and had to be removed. Now, this story didn't come to light until 1918 when a biography mm-hmm. of Andrew Jackson was uh, published. And in it was quoted the Reverend William Normott, who had sort of officiated um, his funeral. And he said, quote, Before the sermon and while the crowd was gathering, a wicked parrot that was a household <laughs> pet got excited. <laughs> And commenced swearing so loud and so long as to distract the people and had to be carried from the house. That's what the priest said. Okay. Um, And this is the only record that we have of this actually happening. But yes, uh, the fact is that Andrew Jackson's parrot, unfortunately unnamed, or certainly his name is not recorded, uh, swore so badly at his funeral that it had to be carted out of the room. Now... I think it was a couple of weeks ago you brought up Mozart's pets. I did, yeah. Who went yeah. to his funeral. There was Mr. Starling, <laughs> John the Canary. It was such terrible names. I they think were... it was Mr. Canary. <laughs> were they all at his funeral? I don't remember. Mm-hmm. But why didn't he name the parrot? I don't know. This is what this is what makes me think that either it was named and it wasn't recorded um, because you, you look at a lot of lists of these sort of presidential, these sort of first pets mm. 
and it'll just say for a lot of the early ones it'll just say three dogs mm. it would then sort of names weren't seen as particularly important um so it tends to be only the ones that were maybe mentioned in sort of letters of Fight it, fighting jim radley the guinea pig <laughs> or whatever he was called fighting, <laughs> fighting bob evans that's please. the one fighting bob evans yeah uh, well that was like the 1940s though mm. so kind of this was much much more well established by mm. then it presumably did have a name mm. um but yeah it the name isn't recorded unfortunately mm. i'm inclined to want this to be true mm-hmm. because it's such a cool fact but you already have had animals at funerals. I'd forgotten about that. Mm, which makes me think this might be true then if you've forgotten about the first mm. one. Because my suspicious but mind... that one was true. It was, which is, why, <laughs> which is why my suspicious mind thinks, oh, you'll give a true one and then a false one. Mm-hmm. But this sounds like an 1840s sort of thing. <laughs> like, it's sort of borderline Victorian eccentric stories. Right. I think I might just say this is true because I want it to be true. Mm-hmm. But then again, you could have put all this flannel at the beginning, all these amazing (laughs) presidential animals, and then just come out with this guff and then written that stupid, oh, the parrot got excited. (laughs) No, I'm going to say it's true. Okay. Yep. That's my final answer. Yep. Andrew Jackson's parrot had to be removed from his funeral. I think that's true. That story? Yes. It's true. Oh, <laughs> am I three one up now? Yeah, you are. Just the think... swearing presidential parrot has done it for you. If I'd got the, if I'd stuck with my guns on the horses, I know. Hey, see, hey, no. I'd have been four one up. That's the first and only time I've ever offered bonus points, <laughs> and probably the last. <laughs> well, some excellent facts there, Paul. That's mm. probably one of my favourites now. Uh, presidential pets. That's just because you got the point. Uh, exactly. Good <laughs> okay, when I said first pets, you thought like about. <laughs> domestication of the very first pet. Which I thought would be as fascinating, to be fair. Mm, yeah, well, you but, know, maybe we'll revisit that. But speaking of using my brain power... Oh, dear, here we go. I'm moving on to my final facts. Right. And it's about the human brain. <laughs> okay. Because I'm sticking with biology. Right. So I've gone from... There's not really a very strong connection between these three, to be honest. It's just they're loosely biological facts. Yeah, you said these were connected. The first one was about a giant camel, an ancient extinct giant camel. The second one was about a fish, and this one's about the brain. They're not connected. Uh, biology. <laughs> Ooh, don't look behind the curtain again. All right, okay. So we're talking about the human brain. So some fascinating facts to start off with. Mm. Um, the brain contains 86 billion nerve cells, and there are about 100 trillion connections between those cells and the brain. Right. Although in your case, I'd knock a few zeros off that number. <laughs> Maybe knock all of the zeros off. <laughs> have, have you decided to do this fact just to make that joke? <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> wait, there's more jokes there's that I've more. had time to rehearse. So the brain is also 60% fat. <laughs> kind of like the rest of your body. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Anthony Edmondson stand-up special, everyone. <laughs> but wait. Oh, wait, there's wait, more. There's more. Don't put that curtain down yet. <laughs> Actually, that's, that's not the joke yet. It's, I wanted to kind of bust, you know that myth where people say we only use 10% of our brains? Oh, right, yes. Like, I think that's been a long busted myth now mm. that it's we actually use 100% of our brains, but just different areas at different times. Yes. And it's actually the brain spends 20% of our calories is used to power the brain. Oh, wow. Mm. Good grief. So we mentioned there that different parts of the brain do different activities. Mm. Like most of your brain spends most of its time trying to remember your own name. <sighs> 
dear me. I'm here all week, everyone. <laughs> Tip your waitresses. Is there a fact? Or is <laughs> it... <laughs> but anyway, my fact's about garden flowers. It's the next 35 minutes of badly written brain jokes about you. <laughs> but it was kind of from that different parts of the brain do different things is where the fact is going to come from. Right. And I want to talk to you about some research that's been done on how scientists have tried to identify how deja vu happens and what parts of the brain are triggered when you get the feeling of deja vu. Right. So as you know, um, in French, deja vu means... Already seen. And didn't you have a Haggard Hawks fact about deja vu, already read? Already read, yeah. There's Mm. uh, Yeah, there's Mm. like five or six different versions of it. There's like deja visite, which is Mm. the feeling that when you travel somewhere new, you kind of know your way around Mm. for some unknown reason. That's deja visite, like already Mm. visited. But there's a few. There's like deja reve, which is um, the feeling that you've already dreamt something. Mm. Did you know that this happens more between people who are 16 to 25? Oh, no, I didn't. because, this is all true so far, by Mm. the way, the brain isn't fully developed until you're 25, or the frontal lobe isn't. Oh, wow. So it takes, well, in your case, I think it's still still on its way. (laughs) I almost forgot that joke. (laughs) I've just, every third line is a joke about your brain. Oh, dear me. You know, you're just sort of tipping the needle into being interesting for the first time (laughs) in the last hour. (laughs) I'll try and rescue this a bit right. then. Okay. So we'll talk about memories because this is why it's linked to deja vu, why you think you might have already seen something. Right. I'll kind of get into the some of the science behind it in a second. But mm-hmm. it's when you get a feeling of deja vu or deja vu, it's actually a misfiring of your fight or flight response. Usual fight or flight, you think, oh, I need to, the adrenaline kicks in, you, you're ready to fight or flight, obviously. Mm-hmm. But when deja vu happens, it's that fight or flight has fired into your long-term memory or your short-term memory. Oh, right. Okay. This is where I need to explain all the science behind it. Oh, no. <clears throat> Everybody brace. Anthony's <laughs> okay. trying to do science. Oh, God. God, help us all. I should go back to the jokes. <laughs> I'd rather you go back to the jokes. <laughs> right. Okay. Let's try some science. So there's a few portions of the brain where memories are stored. Mm-hmm. You kind of store memories differently depending on which part of the brain it goes to. You have kind of episodic memories. Um, obviously, got your long-term memory. Uh, short-term memory and then you've got things like motor memories um how you react to things as well right and this experiment was done in the university of waterloo in kitchener in ontario in 2017 mm-hmm. the experiment was actually wasn't anything to do with deja vu because it's almost impossible to examine someone and then just hope they get experience uh, yeah. deja vu yeah and so it's it was, not like you can induce it in exactly someone. yeah so it's kind of it was by mistake this happened the original experiment, people had, you know, those um, skull caps with the electrodes where it kind of, it's, it, bra- it scans uh, like the brain the monitor waves. Thing, yeah. Yes, monitors brain waves from different parts of the brain. Okay. People were being played different tones into, I forget what the exact purpose of playing the tones was, but right. while the candidates were having these tones played, they would watch um, any movie. It was just their choice. Okay. Um, but one of the participants, as they put the movie on, they'd never seen this movie before in their lives, mm-hmm. but they got a very strong sense of deja vu. It was like, oh, I've definitely seen this movie before. Mm-hmm. And for a good five minutes, the researchers noticed that the area of the brain that triggers fight or flight was trying to send messages to the long-term memory. They think that, basically, they might have been reminded of something in the past that had frightened them, 
and it's mistriggered or misfired the right. fight or flight. Okay. So it's not actually it's not actually a scary event. So they didn't need any adrenaline. Yeah. But it's fired into long term memory. Okay. And it was it's not been recreated. It's because, like I said, it's very difficult mm. to actually trigger deja vu in someone. Mm-hmm. But the kind of leading theory at the minute is in neuroscience is that this is how deja vu happens. It's a misfiring of the fight or flight response. Hmm. Okay, and that's your fact. That is my fact. Okay, that's very interesting. I had about twenty more jokes, but I thought I was getting, <laughs> I was getting a bit top heavy with yeah, the jokes. We'll try and bring this in under the two hour mark as well. Mm. Uh, okay, that's interesting, and that sounds the way that you explained it. I, I know that neither of us have a great grasp of science, but mm. the way that you explained it, it does make sense that this sort of feeling could be triggered by sort of seeing something that did in your past mm. trigger a fight or flight response. Mm. And the brain kind of doesn't know what to do with that. So it Mm. sort of fires it in the wrong direction. Mm. And it comes up with this mangled Mm. thing that gives you the wrong sense, I guess. Exactly. Okay, that makes... Well, I say that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) People who are maybe more well-versed in this might be saying they're thinking... This this is is... why every time there's any science on this, I'm so terrified (laughs) how how stupid (laughs) both of us sound. It's See, it sounds really, really plausible because that does sound like, well, to me, it sounds like that mechanism could happen. Mm. It sounds like that could actually take place. Is it plausible? <sighs> yeah, I suppose it is. The problem is that, is that that would mean that, well, it would sort of imply that every single time you get deja vu, there is something involved that you've been scared of at some mm. point in your past. Like I said, it's only that's the work in theory yeah. at the moment because the the researchers didn't know why else would the fight or flight why else would this would happen start to trigger. And this is only in this one experiment. That this one has experiment. Been it's not been recreated. Right. Like I said, it's almost impossible to recreate. And it wasn't like you say. It wasn't a deja vu experiment. It was something to do with like it was tones. I forget what the experiment was. It must have been some played, sort of oral memory thing. It, or something, it might have or... been. It played tones at different pitches right. over the course of two hours. But, Two hours. Yeah. Maybe Which is why like, they had to watch the movie. Trying deliberately to give people tinnitus. <laughs> <laughs> Two hours. Good grief. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Now, you see, I quizzed you on the experiment there and you answered very confidently. Mm. Didn't sound like you had to make up what that experiment would be like. That's I a... never know how confidence goes on this thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's no. Like it's it often a downfall. Um, so that's telling me that, yeah, maybe if you've made this up, then probably maybe you found out about that tone-based mm. experiment and you've just sort of tacked some kind of rubbish onto it to do with deja vu. So I think probably maybe that's a genuine experiment. The question is whether this was also kind of discovered concurrently or not. Mm. I'm going to say that it was. I'm going to say that this is true. Okay, final answer? I, I wouldn't be surprised if I've got that wrong, but I, yeah, I kind of feel like this is true. This fact is a lie. Oh, that was a really good oh, idea. Thank, oh, th- hey, no, thank you. <laughs> Actually, wow. that tone experiment was something that was done to me when I was at the University of Nottingham. Like, I can't remember what it was all about, but they gave me... Just trying to shut you up for a couple of hours. <laughs> they gave me £10 and a, and a biscuit. Put that thing on his head and make him watch TV while we all talk about him. <laughs> The researcher had to wash my hair afterwards. It was really, oh why? Yeah, they had a big well because all what the gel. What happened to you? Well, they put one of those the skull caps on with the electrode monitoring things. Yeah, and then obviously it's all loads of gel they had to put on my hair. Oh, like an ultrasound thing. Yeah, and then I just sat there and they played different <laughs> tones, 
I don't know what was going on. I watched Eternal Sunshine of the something. Oh, that's a good film. That's the way yeah, I think it was that one. Yeah. Uh, are you sure they just were trying to like get rid of you for a couple of hours? <laughs> Pour, <laughs> pour this slime on his head. Put this thing on top of him. And... Well, they gave me ten pounds and a biscuit as well. So I did, just to try and show you, <laughs> I, went, I went back like two or three times. It's my main source of income, the experimental psychology center. I did another one where they uh, strapped like a little box to the back of my head. You know where the bump is at the back of your skull? Oh yeah, like a little box that they and they passed a low electric current through it, and they made us operate like a lever and like a hook. What? Got, I think I got quite a bit of money for that one. What? Then what one? out of one of them grappler things at the fair? <laughs> yeah, I had, to, I had to operate it. I don't know what that was all about. What? And then um, another one, they made me drink some sort of fluid. And then they put me into a, an MRI scanner for 90 minutes. That's <laughs> like, what's this one for? That was that was 90 quid, that one. What's that? It's like a pound a minute. Oh, I'm taking these. What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> So I was for this fact, I was debating which one of those experiments that were done on me should I use as a basis for a fact. <laughs> but see, no, I don't even care that I got that wrong. Now I, I just like this, you were like some kind of human guinea pig. It was you great. are fighting Bob Evans. <laughs> I made a bit of money doing all of those experiments. That's insane. Yeah. It does sound to me like they were just trying to keep you busy. <laughs> <laughs> That's my professors kept sending us over to them, right? <laughs> Instead of having your meeting with oh, them. Oh, Anthony, I can't, I can't discuss your dissertation today. You've got to go to the MRI scanner for 90 minutes and drink this barium meal or whatever And you is. never found out what any of this was about? Uh, no, I didn't ask any questions. Wow. I thought about hey. doing that again in Newcastle, but um, I thought, you know, I think the experimenting days are done. Or you could just get a job. <laughs> <laughs> Right, well, you know the sort of realisation that you've repeatedly been the subject of human experimentation? It kind of ex- explains quite a lot. <laughs> I can't even remember what your fact was now. <laughs> Just I don't so know. It was, oh, it was the deja vu thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that is quite interesting. I kind of wish that was true. It does make sense. Well, I, I say it makes sense. But anyway. <laughs> Um, right, okay, we're going to finish with uh, some literature, which I know isn't exactly your strong point, mm. but... You'll definitely know the book and the author that I'm going to talk about today. Now you say this, I'm very, very ignorant. (laughs) (laughs) No, because you'll definitely know about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, Roald Dahl. Um, And Roald Dahl. Um, Now, uh, what you might not know is that that book went through um, five sort of major redrafts. Mm -hmm. And the fact, when I get to it, I've got some interesting true facts first, but the fact when I get to it, is sort of a pricey of the plot of the very first draft, which was very, very different from how mm. the book actually ended up. Okay, but to begin with, um, yeah, Charlie and Chocolate Factory published in 1964. Here's a fact for you: it was inspired by Roald Dahl's actual work as a child, uh, testing chocolates for Cadbury's. No way. Yeah, he was sort of part of like an early sort of focus group, and um, every so often Cadbury's would send him. Um, 12 chocolate bars in return for sort of giving feedback as to what you thought they were like. Oh, really? Yeah, completely That's true. interesting. Um, yeah, and as I say, it went through lots and lots of redrafts. I mean, the, the actual plot, as I'm sure everyone knows, is that there are uh, a group of children who gets invited mm. to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory and then they steadily get bumped off mm. one by one in various uh, Was Augustus Gloop the original hero in then <laughs> draft one? Unfortunately not. <laughs> uh, no. Yeah, some other kids that kind of didn't make the final cut were a Wilbur Price mm-hmm. and Tommy Troutbeck. <laughs> right. Um, who were killed... Were killed. 
This guy really cut through the yeah. subtext. They were killed. <laughs> who who uh, disappeared um, in the vanilla fudge room, which mm. was uh, cut out. It was a huge sort of mountain of fudge in the middle of this room. And they got on a train and disappeared in the fudge pounding room. <laughs> Do go on. Moving on. Clarence Crump was another <laughs> kid. Uh, so was Bertie Upside and Terence Roper. All three of them um, kind of met their maker in the book um, by eating too much of a candy that was originally, um, that, well, that got written out of the book. The idea was that if you ate it, it warmed you up. Hmm. And they sort of, you were only supposed to eat one candy at a time, but they overindulged. So presumably they... Who, who? Spontaneous human combustion <laughs> so, going on here. Yes, you've really taken it's, a turn. It's, well, it's pretty macabre. Um, yeah, what do, you, what do you think happens to the kids in the, the actual book? I've never read the book. I just watched the film. I thought they were all right. Oh, well, you Gene know. Gene Wilder at the end said they're all right, doesn't he? Uh, I don't know. Uh, anyway, and yes, um, there was a, a kid called Miranda Piker who was just turned into peanut brittle. Jeez. And um, Roald Dahl wrote a song where the... There was a song the, about all, it. All of the kids have their own songs. <laughs> of course, the Oompa yeah. um, And the Oompa Loompas uh, sing about the parents sort of eating this peanut brittle and really enjoying it. So it was pretty Jesus dark. Jesus Pretty dark, Christ. these uh, early drafts. I mean, the, the one they ended up with was dark enough. But yeah, it was some pretty dark stuff. Um, original names for some of the characters as mm. well. Violet Beauregard, who is, uh, I think she's the one that gets turned into like a blueberry or something. Um, I think so. Yeah. Um, she had two previous names. She was either known as Violet Glockenberry or Violet Strabismus, which I think is a, a strabismus. Is that a squint? I have no something idea. Something like that. Uh, Veruca Salt was originally called Elvira Entwistle. Mike TV was originally called Herpes Trout, <laughs> which I believe no, is... he wasn't. Haven't you got a That's fake a... passport under that name? <laughs> Herpes Trout. Yeah. Um... Yes, my common pseudonym. <laughs> <I> use, uh... <laughs> and uh, the Oompa, Oompa Loompas um, were originally called Whipple Scrumpets. Mm. Yeah. And here's the thing. In the book, they have long brown hair and white skin. Mm. They were made disgusting uh, <laughs> just for the film. Interesting. Yeah. Um, anyway, so the first, very, very first draft, there, there are five drafts that we know about and four of these have survived in the sort of Roald Dahl archives. The very first draft um, was kind of a very different affair. And I'm going to sort of pray this down. It was called Charlie's Chocolate Boy. Okay. Okay. And originally it was a, about a boy who is wandering around a chocolate factory. It's a kind of unknown whether he's been invited or not, but he's in there in the chocolate factory, he's wandering around. And he falls into a huge tub of chocolates, uh, gets sucked up into a machine that makes chocolate figures. Mm-hmm. Um, so he becomes a sort of chocolate boy. Oh, that just happened to me when I went to Cadbury's when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, it gets delivered to a sweet shop. And then he's discovered when a girl buys him and starts eating the chocolate. Mm. Um, and it, Roald Dahl wrote some of this down and gave it to his nephew to read. And his nephew hated it. Mm. So um, this sort of even this very, very first draft went through a sort of second draft. And this is when he added the children in, the other children who've been invited as part of this kind of competition. Mm. Uh, so that this sort of first draft kind of 1B had 10 children mm. in it, not not uh, the number that With eventually there. Herpes Jones. Or yeah. whatever it was. <laughs> Herpes Trout. And uh, Charlie still falls in some chocolates and gets um, encased in it. But in this very first draft, he gets delivered to Willy Wonka's house 
And while he's there, he uh, foils a burglary. <laughs> as in, a chocolate boy. As a chocolate boy in the uh, Wonka household. And Willy Wonka is um, so grateful that this has happened that uh, he gifts Charlie the Chocolate Boy his own sweet shop that is nine stories high. And that was the very first plot of uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, yeah, it, it, luckily it went through a few redrafts um, and turned out to be very successful. It, it sold 10,000 copies in its first week, which um, for children's literature, especially in the 60s, was really, really good. But yes, that is the first draft story of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Right. So all... Every all of that up to is that the plot of the first draft? So up to the the first draft where Charlie just falls in and gets delivered to some girl's house. Oh, yeah, is yeah. this true? Why, if if he can move as a chocolate boy, why why did the girl start to eat him? So yeah. is is he made into chocolate? Yeah, no, he's just covered in chocolate. So how does she eat him? Yeah, because he's just encased in chocolate. So there's a chocolate. So the, but how uh, did he you, foil a burglary in the next? One? <laughs> like if you're, in, you're asking about the logistics of the chocolate. How could he see the chocolate casing? How did machine. he live? Did he just launch himself at the burglar? I don't know. I, I haven't read the full draft. The the I haven't been released. You don't have answers to any of these questions <laughs> because this is a lie, isn't it? <laughs> he falls in the chocolate figurine making machine. So um, are these like boy sized figurines? I'm guessing so, yeah. So otherwise, if it's just like little Freddo Frog things, oh, like it, he it, falls in, he's going to be turned into tiny... He's not going to be just encased in chocolate. Was he in a wrapper as well, was he? A <laughs> giant he boy side? This is bollocks. Well, if he was this delivered is, to Willy Wonka's house... This is this is one of your biggest lies I think you've ever told on here. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know the logistics of how you would live as a chocolate-covered boy. Well, neither does Roald Dahl, apparently. He <laughs> <laughs> didn't seem to write it very well. So how did he go from that to the, what we've got now? What were the other three drafts? Oh, the, well, yeah, it just went through draft after draft and slowly the, the story kind of emerges. He introduces the idea of the competition and he thinned out the number of competitive children. He added the grandparents in and all sorts Why of things. Why was he delivered to Willy Wonka's house? I don't know. Maybe it's because he was such a huge chocolate boy. He's <laughs> such a prize that surely the Mr. Uba-Lubas Wonka needs to see this. Re- wow, this is this is terrible. This is going to be true, isn't it? This is... This is uh, <laughs> This is so stupid. Right, I think I'm just going to have to bite the bullet and say this is BS. But it's going to be true, isn't it? It's, it always happens. You come up with such a stupid story. Like last week, that the Ducks at the Olympics. Right, BS. Okay, Final you say that's BS? Yes. You've that made that up. That wasn't the plot, the first plot of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. you completely made that up. Okay, that entire fact? Mm. It's true. No, I knew it was going to be. I just, that's so stupid. How yeah. does he? I want to see these drafts. I would, yeah, I want. I'm going to write a letter to the the Dahl family. You'll have it. to. Yeah, you have to go through the uh, the Dahl back catalogue and request it from the archives. See how? What? what right. Uh, there's too many questions about that. That's, it's still. I don't think it's true. It's completely true. Yeah, I'm the chocolate covered boy. Foils a burglary at Willy Wonka's house. What oh, was that? Was that the working title? Was it? <laughs> <laughs> What's so hard to think about that? Ridiculous. Mm. But the most important thing is, I think I've won. You've won. Yeah, four two today. So a solid victory. Does that even things out so far? It does. I think it's a win each and one draw. And one draw. Yeah, halfway through, and we're still level pegging. But what did we learn? 
today, Paul. Well, yeah, I, I just bowled over with the presidential pets more than anything else. That was my favourite fact. Yeah, it might be we... my new top... Yeah. Top five, at least. That we learned one, I think. that Teddy Roosevelt had a guinea pig called Fighting Bob Evans, mm. um, which might be my favourite fact <laughs> ever. <laughs> but also, um, yeah, Andrew Jackson's funeral was interrupted by his swearing pet parrot. Mm. Um, yeah, and we learned that that was the genuine plot of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which is insane. Mm. I had my f- only. I only had one true fact. Today, I know you, was, were, uh, you were coming out with them. Yeah. Camelops. I still, I still think that's not true as well. <laughs> It's more believable than the chocolate boy solves crimes. <laughs> yeah, Camelops. Yeah, the megafauna of the United States. Interesting. Well, yeah. Well, oh, well, well done, Tones. Thank you. Yeah. And thanks for listening, everybody. If you want some more bonus content, please head over to our Patreon page. I'm sure Paul will put some more nonsense on there about chocolate boys and <laughs> other lies. Yeah, and presidential pets. But we might have some nice bonus podcasts on there and some little retrospectives and... Yeah. Looking back at previous facts. Yeah, so take away. All the links are on the website, yesobs.com. Exactly. And we shall see you next week.